Hey, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We are going to look at the greatest act of love in all of human history, something that should never grow common. You know, the thing that separates Christianity from everything else, everybody else has dead prophets and dead false gods. We have a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? And that's why we have hope, and that's why... Again, we know that our God is God, and there are no other gods before him, beside him, or after him. So if you have your outline, grab it. And I tell the message, so just how much does Jesus love you? And I, I hope we never lose sight of this. You know, where the world will have, there will be times, in, and I know people that will go through depression and anxiety and fear and worry. And there are people that just struggle in life and often the enemy will tell you that you're of no value. By the way, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and he's the father of lies, amen? And we don't wanna to listen to him. But what will happen is he'll condemn you and he'll come after you. And what we need to be reminded is you determine the value of something by what someone is willing to pay. And almighty God loved you so much that he sent his son to suffer and die in your place so that you could have eternal life. He was willing to be separated. Jesus was willing to be separated from the Father so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And so as we look at that tonight, I pray that we never lose sight of it. So again, I tell the message, so just how much does Jesus love you? There'll be five points we'll look at tonight. You know, greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. How much does he love you? He endured pain and mocking from wicked men so that you might be saved. He humbled himself out of love for you. He was mocked by people he could have stopped. He was tortured. He was beaten. All the things that he endured, he was you know, humiliated. And he endured all of it when he could have put a stop to it at any moment out of love for you. And number two, even in his time of greatest physical weakness and suffering, he pressed on out of love for you. Now, Jesus is 100% God. He always has been and he always will be. He is not created. He is the creator. But we must never lose sight of the fact that while he is 100% God, when he took on human flesh, he was also 100% man. So he's fully God and fully man. And he knew what it was like to be tempted, but yet without sin. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be, you know, to feel pain. And he endured again, all of that out of love for us. Number three, he suffered as if he lived your life so that you might be rewarded as if you lived his. He felt the pain of sin and separation so that we might know the joy of intimate and eternal fellowship. We talk about how much heaven is so much better, but you know what's amazing? We are going to see Jesus face to face and we are going to, he's going to rule and reign and we are going to have intimate fellowship with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. And you know what? We'll never have to say goodbye to those that we love. We'll never know separation, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death because he knew pain and he knew sorrow and he knew death and he knew separation so that we would never have to know those ever again. That is the God that we serve. What a great and awesome God he is. Number four, he tore down the veil of separation between sinful man, that's a misspelling on there, sinful man and holy God. You know, prior to Jesus dying on the cross, there was a veil. We'll talk about this. And the veil was 60 feet tall and it was very thick and very heavy. It, it took multiple priests to hang this veil. When they hung the veil, it was, it was separation between man and God. And only on Yom Kippur, only on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could go on inside that veil and go into the presence of Almighty God and there make sacrifices, again, pointing to the coming Messiah. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And now all of us, anywhere and anytime, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you now have access to the Father at all times and praise God for that. We're no longer separated from him. We don't have to wait for one day a year and let someone go in and talk to him on our behalf. You can talk to the Lord anywhere and anytime and praise God for that. You can enter into fellowship with him here and now. And then finally, he triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. Again, he experienced death so that we might have life. So now as we get to the text, let me just give you quickly what's happened. Already Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, somebody who walked with Jesus for three years and then betrayed him for the price of a slave. 
And then, of course, we know that Judas regretted it, but he didn't truly repent. The Bible says it was better for him if he had never been born. You know, it's a, it's a sad picture, but it should be a word of exhortation for all of us. Just because you walk near Jesus doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. It's not enough to know about him. It's not enough to even be numbered amongst his children. Only God knows and you know whether you really have a relationship with the Lord. By our fruit, they shall know us. And what's amazing about Judas is he looked like, you know, when they said that one of you, when Jesus said one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all go, well, we know it's him. He had gotten over on everybody in the room and they didn't even know who it was. And anything they said, is it going to be me, Lord? And so there's a lot of people who put on the Christian face and may look like they're going to heaven. And here's what's going to, when you get to heaven, you can't point to mom and dad. God has no grandchildren. You can't point to your aunts and uncles. You can't point to your baptismal certificate or the good works that you've done. While all those can be wonderful things, what it really comes down to is, do you have a relationship? Have you been born again? Does the spirit of the living God dwell inside of you? Because that's our down payment on heaven. So as we come here, Judas has already betrayed him. He's already been put on trial by the religious leaders of the day. They beat him. They spit on him. They mocked him. Uh, again, they're Religious leaders often today are still spitting in Jesus's face and mocking him. They denied his deity. They denied the inerrancy of his word. They take his glory for themselves. That's what we see often today. Peter has already denied the Lord, uh, you know, three times. Not so, Lord, I'll never deny. I'll never do that. And we need to be careful because often in the area where we think we're the strongest is the area where we're going to fall the hardest. Because when we cease to be humble, broken, and desperate, then we start to rest in our own strength and take heed lest ye fall. So at this point, Peter has gone away and he's weeping bitterly because he cussed and said he didn't know the Lord. Judas has betrayed him. Jesus has now already been tried by the religious leaders, but they cannot have him put to death. They were not, it was against Roman law. So they're going to bring him to the Roman government now. We're going to see that in tonight's text. Put him on trial again. And here's the reality. While Pilate may have been used, the Romans may have been used. The religious leaders may have been used. It was Jesus that had a divine appointment with the cross. And it wasn't because of what they did. It's because he knew he had to go to the cross so that you and I could be saved. Amen? And too often people will make statements like, well, the Jews crucified Jesus or the Romans crucified Jesus. No, we all crucified Jesus. Amen? He had to go because of us. And he was willing to do so. So we're going to look at the greatest act of love. We know that they chose Barabbas over Jesus. His own followers have denied him and betrayed him and run away from him. And let's pick up there in verse 1 of, uh, excuse me, verse 15 of Mark 15. Verse 15. So Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd and release Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You know, sometimes you read a verse in the Bible and that verse does not give enough uh, detail. To be scourged, if you've been coming to this church, you know what it's, what it's like, but let me describe it to you. Again, history says Jesus died. Theology says he ex explains it, that he died for our sins. And now we're going to take an in-depth look at the depth of his suffering. So to be scourged, it was brutal. It was created by the Romans to be the most painful way to bring about torture, that along with the cross. And they would typically do everything they could to inflict the most pain, but hopefully have them, the person die slowly. So it was a form of torture that the Romans were proud of. It was so looked down upon that those words were not even spoken of in public because they were considered almost inappropriate to be talked about because they were so brutal. So what does it mean to be scourged? Well, it was done using a Roman instrument of torture called the flagellum. It was a whip with 12 or 13 leather, leather thongs on it. A lead ball was attached to the end of each one of them, and pieces of glass and metal, and sometimes bone, were embedded between the lead ball at the end and the handle at the top. So they're very long, it's weighted at the end, and then there's these sharp objects in the middle. And what the person who was doing it, the person who was being uh, scourged, they were tied to a pole, hands and feet up off the ground by about a foot, so they could not defend themselves. So they're hanging to the pole, and the person's 
several feet away and they come from a great distance and they reach out like this and now 15, 12, 13, 14, 15, so all would grab a hold of the person being scourged. And often it would come around and grab a hold of the skin on the front side and it would grab a hold and when they would pull it back, it would bring back chunks of the person's flesh. Often it would catch eyes and pull eyes out. And so this was happening to our Savior, 12 or 13 of these hitting him each time with multiple places where, so by the third or fourth lash, all of a sudden his, his skin is almost gone. By the time you get to 10, 11, 12, he's a bloody mess. We know that by the time he gets to the cross, he's not even recognizable because of all the torture and torment that he went through. And as he's going through it, how many of you guys have seen The Passion of the Christ? Okay, to me, this is the hardest thing to watch of the entire film. It's when Jesus is being scourged and you just want it to stop. And the amazing part to me is that Jesus could have stopped at any time he wanted to because he's God, amen? They were mocking him as they were beating him. The most torturous death that, that only, that even the worst human being doesn't deserve in a sense. And here he is taking it upon himself and enduring it all out of love for us. So they usually did, it was 39 lashes. It was 40 lashes minus one, like they were showing grace. And 40, we know in the Bible, is the number of testing. So at the end of the beating, the accused would be cut down. By the time he came to the end, again, it would reduce his back to the consistency of hamburger. His internal organs would be exposed. It tells us in Isaiah 53 that by his stripes we are healed. And he, is, he bore those stripes for us. At the end of the beating, the accuser would be cut down. His body would fall to the cement where he would lay in a pool of his own blood. And most men died of scourging. Most of them did not survive. You know why Jesus survived? Because he had an appointment with the cross to die on our behalf. He did not die here. The soldiers stood him up. They brought him out. And Pilate, here he is a bloody mess. You can imagine the, what it's, and again, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And that torture he has gone through, they now parade him out in front of the crowd and they put a robe on him. They take a crown of thorns and press it into his head. They give him a flimsy little uh, reed to look like a, a scepter and they mock him as the king of the Jews. And they're mocking the Lord and they're standing him up. And what he says is, behold the man. And what Pilate's trying to do is get all the people to show him some mercy he tried to get them to choose him over Barabbas, but they cried out for a, a criminal instead of Jesus. And now he's trying and hoping that having seen how much he's been tortured, having seen how badly he's been beaten, that they will finally say, that's enough. But instead, they're going to cry out something else. What do they cry out? Crucify him. It's not enough. We want him to suffer even more. It says, then the soldiers, verse 16, led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, about 600 soldiers. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, remember in the Bible, thorns represents what? Sin. There were no thorns on this planet until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And so these thorns are long, two to three inches long, and they place it upon his head. And as they did, his body is already broken and bleeding. And now it's opening the blood vessels in your head. And if you've ever cut your head before, you know that nothing bleeds more than your head does. So now there's more blood running down our savior. He's in, unrecognizable. He's covered in this blood. And again, it was our sin being placed upon him. That's what a picture of that crown of thorns. The official indictment against Jesus was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews and the soldiers took advantage of this accusation and paid homage to the king. They're mocking our savior. By the way, the mocking of our savior has not stopped. People still mock his name today, amen? His name is, is a curse word for more people than it is an act of worship, amen? They say Jesus Christ and GD and all these things cursing his name. No one ever curses Buddha. No one swears to Muhammad or Hari Krishna. I've never heard anybody say once. But they curse our Savior. And you know why? Because he alone truly is God. 
And there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And it's his name, it's the cross of Calvary that is a stone of offense that causes people to recognize that they're sinners in need of a savior and they don't like it. So they curse his name and they mock our savior and he continues to endure it. The thorns again came into existence. Again, there was a reed to imitate they purposely chose something flimsy looking. Then it says in verse 18, they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus could have wiped them all out with a single word and returned to heaven, but he didn't. As they mocked him, he continued to take it. Next, remember that next time somebody's mocking you. Remember that so, next time someone's saying things about you that, you know, are getting your flesh stirred up. You know, where to forgive others as Christ forgave us. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let the Lord defend you, he'll do a better job, amen? And the enemy will attack you, the enemy will come after you. Just remember how much our, our Savior endured. We can't say to the Lord, well, you don't understand what it's like to be mocked. Yes, he does, he knows. And he's our example that we should follow. And notice this, they haven't done enough. It says, verse 19, they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. So they struck him on the head. They took a reed and a hard end of it, and they're beating our Savior on the head, kind of like an ax handle. And they're hitting our Savior with it. He's already been tormented enough. His body's already exposed. He's got blood running from his body. He's already standing there weak. And then they spit in his face. And here's the reality. There's, no, there's very few things more humiliating than having someone spit in your face. And they spit in our Savior's face. And he endured it because he loves you. Again, the next time you think you're of no value, the next time you, somebody makes you feel like you're not of any worth, remember back to the cross. Remember that all he endured. We haven't even started to, the, to Calvary yet. All of this has taken place and our Savior continues to endure it. He gave himself freely to all the pain, all the torture, all the humiliation because he loves you. And he took it all without fighting back. He doesn't even speak. He endured so much for us. Christians feel persecuted sometimes when the pews are too hard at church. Amen. When it's cold outside and we have church outside. Guys, we can, we can, be, in the, we can be put on a jacket for Jesus. He hung on a cross for us. Amen. And we must never lose sight of the depths of his love for us. By the way, this is not a Aesop's fable. This really happened. This really happened. When we get to heaven, do you know the only scars that we're going to see in heaven are the ones that are in our Savior's hands and feet? We're going to be made whole. We're still going to see the imprints and the depths of his love for us. And it says, verse 20, when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Now imagine again as his body is, and I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you and you might say, why do you have to be so detailed? Because I don't want us to lose sight of the depths of what our Savior was willing to endure for us. Amen? Because guys, we're, we're afraid sometimes to speak up because we're afraid of what somebody might think about us. By the way, there's some people that come to church on Sunday if someone would invite them. Let's invite them. Amen? But too often, we're, more, we're so concerned about what people will think about us. Just remember what Jesus endured for us. And when they took the purple robe off of him, what did that do? It opened all the wounds again. And his blood began to pour again. And they took the clothes he had on when he was scourged. It can't be much to them. And threw them back on him. These bloody clothes. And here's our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Almighty God, the creator of the universe, the one who said light is and light was, the one who put the stars into the sky, the one who could call a legion of angels from heaven and wiped out all his enemies in a moment. And yet he continued to endure it out of love for you. So point number one, he endured pain and mocking from wicked men so that you might be saved. He humbled himself out of love for you. It says they took him away to be crucified. Now crucified again, the most shameful and painful way to execute a criminal. And again, so degrading was the form of capital punishment. It was not mentioned in polite society. And Roman executioners had perfected this art of slow torture while keeping the person alive as long as possible. Some victims even uh, lingered until they were eaten alive by birds of prey or wild beasts. They would last long enough that they would just be attacked and eaten alive. 
Most hung on the cross for days before dying of exhaustion, dehydration, traumatic fever, or suffocation. You know, when they're on the cross, what would happen is they're, they're bodies are pressed against this wood and they're being held up by, by the weight, by their, the nail through their feet and the one through their hands. And what they have to do is they have to push on that weight. And it's in a place where there's nerve endings. So every time you touch it, it's pain is shooting through your body. And what would happen is they would go like, they would fall forward and then they couldn't breathe. So in order to breathe, They'd have to pick themselves up. And every time they did, that pain would shoot through their bodies. And yet the desire to remain alive would cause them to continue to do this over and over and over. And the pain would go on and on and on. When their legs could no longer support the weight of the body, the diaphragm was constricted in a way that made breathing impossible. Sometimes they would even break the legs of some people that were crucified so that they would suffocate. Our hands were nailed to the wrist and feet through the instep, the Achilles tendon. None of these wounds would be fatal, but they would become unbearable as time drug on. The most notable feature of the crucifixion was the stigma of disgrace that was attached to it. The humiliation of carrying his own cross, which would weigh about 200 pounds. And four soldiers would escort the prisoner through the crowds in the place, to the place of crucifixion. And a placard bearing whatever uh, crime they committed was placed above their name. Now, what's unique about when Jesus dies is it's the time when there's the most people in Jerusalem. It's Passover. And at Passover, Jews would come from great distances. Many uh, would, only, you know, would only come once or twice in their lifetime. And so this was something that the population could multiply 10 or 20 times what it normally is. So Jesus was not only humiliated in a, in a deep way, he was humiliated in the biggest crowd possible. And so now he's going to, as his body is broken, as his skin is ripped open, as his blood is flowing, as he's weak, he's now going to be given a cross and he's going to start carrying it to the outside, outside the city gate to the place Golgotha where he would be to be crucified. So Jesus has been awake all night. He's been scourged and, accused, uh, uh, and abused by soldiers. He began to carry his cross, but due to his exhaustion, we were about to see he was not able to carry it. Point number two, even in his time of greatest physical weakness and suffering, he pressed on out of love for you. Notice what happened. So he's carrying the cross, and as he's carrying it, Jesus is going to collapse. So this proves that while he is fully God, he is also fully man. He did not water down the pain. He did not make it less painful, which he certainly could have done. Later on, they're going to try to get him to sip some, uh, this, you know, this wine, this gall that, that would deaden his pain, and Jesus didn't even touch it. So his pain could have been deadened, but it wasn't. He fully endured all of it. So as he's walking, he collapses in the midst of this huge crowd that has come there for Passover. Now, there's a certain man who came, and he was there with his family to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover, remember, is looking back to when they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. It was that final plague that took place. And if you remember, the way that they were delivered is that anybody who wanted to be delivered from this plague had to take a, a lamb, examine the lamb, make sure it was spotless, then shed its blood, and then apply the blood to the top of the doorpost, both sides and at the feet. Now, again, to them, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet, but it was a picture of the cross and where Jesus bled from. And anybody who had the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, the angel of death would pass over. And they were looking back to Passover, but see, Passover was always pointing forward to Jesus. So they're coming for Passover and they're bringing their lambs to sacrifice and the lamb of God is taking away the sins of the world is right in front of them. So here's Simon of Cyrene and he's there and Jesus collapses in front of him. And we know from the, all the gospels combined that all of a sudden one of the Roman soldiers just drops the end of his spear on his back or his sword on his back and tells Simon, you pick up the, the cross and carry it the rest of the way. So here's a bloody cross. Here's people spitting at our savior and mocking him and the other people being taken to the cross. And now he's come to celebrate, if you will, to, to remember Passover. Now all of a sudden, he's carrying this bloody cross. 
And he's no doubt getting spit on and all the other things that are taking place as he's walking with our Savior. Now, the reason that Simon has to carry the cross is because Jesus was not a sinner and did not have to carry the cross. Amen? That was our cross to bear, not his. Amen? And Simon carries the cross. Now, you can imagine while he's carrying this bloodstained cross how he must have been upset. I came here for to celebrate. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and now I'm, I'm in the midst of the criminals, and now I'm carrying this bloody cross. Now, we know later that, that Simon is a believer. He's born again. Now, do you think in heaven he's bummed out he carried the cross, or do you think he counts it as a blessing? And here's the reality for us sometimes. We go through difficulties and trials because we make a stand for Jesus Christ. And sometimes we think it's not fair. And I want to tell you something, that any suffering we do for the cause of Christ is nothing compared to what Christ did for us. And it should be, we join in the fellowship of his suffering. And everybody in the Bible used mightily suffered greatly. So how dare we think we don't have to suffer for the cause of Christ? And if we never suffer, it's because maybe we're just not telling anybody about the Lord. Maybe we're undercover Christians. You've heard me say it before. People are coming out of the closet for all kinds of stuff. It's time for Christians to come out of the closet for Jesus Christ. Amen? So these same people that on Palm Sunday said, Hosanna, four days later were singing, yelling, crucify him. And now they're lined up across, uh, along the street. And Simon has picked up his cross and walking along with the Lord and Jews were in a hurry so as not to defile the Passover with dead bodies. They were trying to hurry up and get him to the cross so they could hurry up and crucify him because they didn't want to defile Passover. This is what happens when you are religious and lost. This is what happens when you lose sight of the Savior. Guys, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And sadly, because they were so caught up in rituals, they were so caught up in, well, we, went, we don't want to defile the Passover by having the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world die on Passover. But is it by chance that Jesus went to the cross on Passover? The Lamb of God, when the blood of lambs was flowing through the brook Kidron, as Jesus would walk over it on the way to the cross. Guys, it's all pointing to Jesus. He is the answer. And I'm so thankful for his love and his grace and his mercy. So Simon's carrying the cross probably wondering, why me? And some of us, maybe we've suffered, nowhere in, in that, to that de degree, but we've suffered and we might say, why me? Why me? Why do I have to suffer? I'm faithful, I serve the Lord. Why should I have to go through difficult times? Here's the answer, why not us? Amen? If we've surrendered our life to the Lord, then he can do with it as he will. And if, he, if our suffering is going to bring him glory, then we should praise him in the midst of the storm. Amen? We should praise him in the midst of it. Again, Simon becomes a believer. Mark and Paul referred to Simon and his family's faithfulness to God in later texts. He went to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb, and instead he met the Lamb of God and praised God for that. You know, that's my prayer for this Sunday for churches all across America, all around the world, that people are going to go to, to observe a religious tradition, and I pray that millions of them have a head-on collision with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? That they wouldn't just come and do their religious duty, but they'd come and the Holy Spirit would just meet them. And their eyes would be opened. And they would repent of their sins. And they would be born again. Pray that happens here on Sunday. But you know what? I'm just as excited if it happens down the street as if it happens here. We want to see people saved. Amen? Jesus died for us. And he died for them. The key to life is for us is to, the Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, deny himself, take up what? his cross and follow me. Jesus is the example we follow. He was willing to be humiliated. He was willing to be tormented. He was willing to be mocked. He was willing to suffer so that we could be saved. How, should, how can we not be willing to do the same? And he doesn't ask of us what he's done for us. He asks us far less, but may we have that same heart. Live for yourself and you'll end up dying Life will be a drag, you'll be unhappy, cynical, bitter, mean, and ugly. But if you die to self, you'll find his burden is light. You'll have joy, you'll have peace. And die to promoting self and being comfortable and getting noticed. Live so that others will notice Christ. That should be our prayer every day. Lord, I pray that they see you and not me. 
I hope they forget us and only remember him. Amen? So it says there, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear the cross. So they gave him the cross. They brought him to the place Golgotha. Golgotha, it means place of the skull. In Latin, the word is Calvaria, where we get Calvary. And if you go to Israel with us, and we're going to go back, Lord willing, we're going to get there one way or the other, amen? <laughs> After the rapture, we're coming back with them to the new Jerusalem, so we're going to get there either way. But you know what? There is a, a hill right on the side, on the outskirts, and, and you look at it even now, 2,000 years later, and you can see what looks like the face of a skull. And it's there that most believe that's where Jesus was crucified. And so he was crucified, again, on this busy street coming in and out of Jerusalem on Passover. And they want to hurry up and get him dead so that they don't defile Passover when he's the Lamb of God who was there to take away the sins of the world. Verse 22, so they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Again, the same word in Greek, since myrrh was used as a narcotic to deaden pain, Jesus refused it. It is interesting that when Jesus was born, they brought him three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and? Now, it's interesting, they gave him myrrh because myrrh was something used to deaden pain. And what that shows us is that Jesus was born to die. He came to earth to die for us. They gave him gold because he's the king of kings, amen? The frankincense is a perfume. He's a sweet-smelling aroma everywhere he goes, amen? But he also came to die for us. Give him to him at birth. He is the anointed one. He came to die. Verse 24, when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine which every man should take. This fulfills Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. It tells us that, and then later in John 19, it tells us that Jesus' garments were without seam. They were perfect. So they could not be divided. It says in Psalm 22 that they will gamble for his clothing. So that's exactly what took place. Psalm 22 was written 700 years before the crucifixion, fulfilled on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah 53, we're going to look at a couple of verses from that. Go read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. They're in the Old Testament, and they are such clear pictures of the cross that every time I talk to someone who is, is, uh, believes in Orthodox Judaism, I, that's exactly where I take them. And they have no answer. And the reason I don't have an answer, because it's all about Jesus. Amen. So I encourage you to look at those verses. Now notice it says there, and watch this. They crucified him, casting his gar for garments, determining everyone should take. Now, it was the third hour and they crucified him. So the Jews, the way they did their clocks, sunrise was the first hour. So the third hour of sunrise at six, Jesus' crucifixion began about 9 a.m. So he'd been up all night. He'd been mocked and all the things, you know, falsely accused and all the things he went through. Then he was scourged. Then he was brought before Pilate. And now in the morning with, you know, the rush of people coming to Passover, they bring him out to the outskirts of the city gate. And there he is being crucified at the beginning of the day. Notice what it says there in verse 26. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. See, everybody else, it would say murderer rapist, thief. And with Jesus, there was nothing they could accuse him of. He didn't murder anybody. He came to die for everybody. Amen. He, he didn't steal from anyone. He just gave to others. He wasn't a thief. So what did they put? They had nothing to write. So they wrote the King of the Jews. They wrote it in three languages. This is the first ever gospel track. Amen. Because as people walked into Jerusalem, murderer, thief, king of the Jews. We know that the Jews got fired up about that because they weren't happy. They wanted him to change what it said about our Savior. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with his transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, 6. So it was said 700 years before, before crucifixion, speaking of the Messiah who was to come, 
that he would be numbered amongst his transgressions. It also says that like a lamb led to slaughter, he will open not his mouth. There's so many things that are said that fulfilled by Jesus Christ 100%. And so the robber, this speaks of someone who plunders as he steals. They weren't just mere thieves. You're not going to get crucified for stealing a candy bar. These guys were crooks. These guys were robbers. These guys were vicious. And so they were rightfully so, going to be crucified. Jesus did not deserve to be there. They did. Guys, Jesus didn't deserve to be there, but we all do. Amen? We all deserve to be there. And so they were probably friends of Barabbas, is my guess. They were all going to be crucified together. Now Jesus is taking the place of Barabbas, the worst of the three. He's on the cross meant for Barabbas, and because they, they cried out for him instead of, the, instead of the Lord. And Pilate was trying to wash his hand. By the way, Pilate does not get off the hook here. Too often people want to say, oh, poor Pilate. He was put in a tough situation. You know, Pilate washed his hands of the Lord and said, I want nothing to do with it. Guys, let me tell you right now, no decision with Jesus is a decision. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no neutral ground. Amen? You either have a relationship with the Lord or you're an enemy of God. Well, Pastor Dave, that doesn't sound very nice. You know what doesn't sound nice? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but he did it. So these thieves, he was numbered with them. Verse 29, and those who passed by blaspheming, waving, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Remember before they had talked to the Lord about the temple and he had told them he would, t he would, he would destroy it and raise it up again in three days. Now, of course, he wasn't, he could, first of all, he could rebuild the temple in three seconds because he's God, amen? But that's not what he's talking. He was talking about himself, that he was going to die. He was going to go into the ground and three days later, he was going to raise from the dead. So people are walking by, mocking the Lord, shaking their finger at him, you know, taunting him. Now, again, as believers, why do we get all upset when that happens to us, when it happened to our Savior? Amen? We get bent out of shape. We all, our flesh rises up. Is it only me? Does your flesh not rise up when someone mocks you? Who do you think you're talking to, pal? You're probably picking up your teeth with a broken arm. You know, the mentality that we can have. And, and that's, that's how we want to respond in our flesh. We need to remember we're followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus they said, you've saved others. Now, that's interesting to me because they know he saved others. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Amen? Is that an undeniable fact? You go to a guy's funeral, three days later, he shows up back at work. That's kind of a deal. Amen? <laughs> Lazarus is walking around. Now, what should the, the religious leaders, when they saw Lazarus, they should have said, dude, we need to go talk to this Jesus guy because we went to his funeral and that dude's walking around. What's up? We need to go find out who this guy is. Instead, they tried to kill Lazarus because they wanted to shut up the work that God had done. And you know what? The enemy wants to shut up the work that God's done in your life. He doesn't want you to talk about it. He wants you to be afraid to speak up. He wants you to walk around and keep it to yourself. The enemy can't take you to hell with him. He'll, keep, he'll try to keep you quiet until you get to heaven. May we not be quiet. May we be unashamed of the gospel. May we shout it from the mountaintops. He died for us. He's our savior, our Lord, our God, and our king. We should be unashamed of him. He did not come to save his life, but to give it as a ransom for sinners like us. Come on down from there. He could have done it. Then many saved others. The, he healed the blind man, the lame man, the deaf man. He, you know, he raised people from the dead. He, he, he calmed the storm. He cast demons into pigs and ran off a cliff. I mean, go over and over and all the th miraculous things that he did. And yet people still chose not to believe. And right now people would rather believe that it went from the goo to the zoo to you over billions of years with random chance than the fact that almighty God created you in his image. And they'll mock you. You believe that, you really believe that the world's 6,000 years old? Yes. That's why there's genealogies in the Bible. Amen? You really believe that a man was swallowed by a fish? Well, you really believe that that fish became a man? You tell me which one of those is harder. Amen? 
But the reality is, is the enemy is attacking the truth and we as believers should not sit back and let them continue to lie about our Savior without speaking up. Amen? Amen. We're Christians. We represent, now be kind, be loving, be gracious. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Don't be arrogant, don't be self-righteous. Be kind, be loving, but don't be silent. Amen? Amen. You saved others. I'm surprised. Well, yeah, you're right. He did save others. The religious leaders were so concerned with heavenly signs and miracles that they were blind to the signs of the times that were all around them. You've, had, you've probably had this told you. You've had it said to me many times. Well, if God's real, then he should just come down here and show himself to me. All you got to do is look around. He's already shown himself to all of us. Amen? Amen? You ever thought about the fact that if the, if the earth was 1% closer to the sun, we'd all burn up, and 1% further away, we'd all freeze. Have you ever thought about the fact that the makeup of the H2O that we breathe and the carbon dioxide that we exhale is made in such a perfect way? I mean, have you ever looked at the human body? Take an anatomy class and then tell me that this all happened by random chance, amen? If you look at, if you take a microscope or a telescope, they all reveal that God is who he says he is. You look at a microscope and you see the, the uh, one human strand of DNA, and how God, and it's all unique in all of us. We have our own DNA and God uniquely put us together. And you look at the, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, and all of it points to almighty God being a perfect creator who holds it all in his hands. Amen? And the world will try to shout you down and make you feel stupid if you believe that. You know what's stupid? Not believing in the one who created you and has proven it over and over and over and over again. Amen? May we be unashamed of the gospel. By the way, faith comes by hearing and hearing by. Guys, if we want to be able to take a stand for the Lord, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Amen? They're wagging their fingers at the Lord. He saved others himself he cannot save. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So they're saying, if you're really God, get down and prove it. And that's the same thing that the world asked for. But we know from Luke 16, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, that the rich man even said, go back and tell my family. He was in hell, in torment. He looked across and saw Lazarus, the, the beggar who had knew the Lord and was in a place of peace. He said, can he dip his finger in water and bring it to me? And they're separated by sin. And he's like, look, I want, don't go tell my family. I don't want him to come here. And the Lord tells them, if they won't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe even if a man comes back from the dead. See, if we don't believe the law and the prophets, the word of God, we won't believe any experience or any miracle that could take place. By the way, he's done enough miracles and he continues to do miracles. Does our God continue to do miracles? What's the answer? We have not because we ask not. Does he heal people? How many of you have been, been miraculously healed at some point in your lifetime? I have. I had a tumor behind my cheekbone when I was a freshman in high school, uh, bigger than a golf ball. And they, the dentist sent me to the, the, to the uh, cancer doctor. The cancer, they ran the thing and they came back and they, took a, a, they put a thing up there and they came back and said, we're gonna have to go in and probably cut part of your cheekbone away and pull this tumor out. And the day before I was supposed to have surgery, we came to church, they laid hands on me, they prayed on my face. If any sick among you pray, we prayed. And before they did the surgery, my parents said, you're gonna take another x-ray. They said, we've already done four, four different places. It's on all of them. They said, we're not doing this until you do it. They did another x-ray and guess what? The tumor was gone. That's our God. Amen. Now, again, sometimes he leaves it. I've had a parasite since 1993. He hasn't gotten rid of that. Now, look, in the midst of all of that, we trust him. Amen. He's a faithful God. And you know what? Sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms us. Sometimes he allows us to go through the storm and he walks with us through it that we might be strengthened in the midst of it. So Jesus he could deliver himself from the cross. We said in Matthew that you're going to see the sign of Jonah. How many days was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Three days. And he got belched up in Nineveh where he was supposed to go to begin with. That's a good lesson learned, amen? Just obey God to begin with so you don't have to come back smelling like dead fish, amen? It's better. They reviled him. Point number three. 
He suffered as if he lived your life so you could be rewarded as if you lived his. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So again, so Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. The sixth hour is six hours from sunrise, so that's noon. From noon until three o'clock, the entire world was in pitch black darkness. The word there for it, where it says there, darkness over the whole land, the word is where we get geography in Greek, and it speaks of the entire earth. Now, what's interesting is the whole world was blanketed with darkness as Jesus took up the sins uh, upon himself. And we know that when uh, at the original Passover, there was darkness uh, again upon the earth. And now here we have that Jesus is dying on the cross. So the, the, the world goes pitch black as Jesus has the sin of all mankind being placed upon him. And he knows separation from the father. You know, and our God is, you know, Jesus is, is light, the light of the world. Amen. We are the light of the world. So darkness comes. It's a picture of all the sin of mankind being placed upon him. Remember when Jesus was born, a, a star shone over the manger and light flooded the sky. And now as he takes the sins of mankind upon himself, there's darkness. He's being killed and darkness was covering the world. When man rejected the light of the world, he experienced darkness covering the world. They rejected the light of the world. Again, there were three days of darkness in Egypt before Passover. And here there's three hours of darkness before the Lamb of God dies for the sins of of the world. It says in verse 34, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time that Jesus addresses the father, he calls him Abba. Every other time when he talks to the father in scripture, he calls him Abba. Abba means daddy. But this time, Psalm 22 is what this is quoted from. He calls him my God. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, you are purer eyes than to behold evil and you cannot look on wickedness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. See, the father had no choice but to turn his back on the son and Jesus felt the agony of isolation. See, you know what? What sin does is sin brings about death and what death does is it separates and that's why when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. You know, the, the thing that is so hard about people that we love here, even if they know the Lord dying, is we are separated from them for a time. And here Jesus knows separation from the Father. Now look, here's the reality. Fully grasping the Trinity is impossible for the finite minds of those of us in this room. Amen? We have an understanding that there's one God and three persons, we grasp that. But you know, you, when Jesus was baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and it's only one God. We all get a headache. You know why? Because we are finite men trying to grasp infinite God. Amen? That being said, there's only one God and he's in three. And, and at this point, they knew separation from each other. You can hear the agony and the isolation in his words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, quoted from the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 22. Those who were taunting Jesus as he paid for their sins should have known that he was quoting Psalm 22, the classic Psalm, which describes the crucifixion of the Messiah. And even as he was dying, Jesus was cluing them in. As they mocked him, he was trying to tell them, read the Bible. He says that often to the Pharisees. You should know what the Bible says. They thought they were such great scholars. They were walking in darkness because they did not comprehend the light of the world and the light of God's word. Verse 35, some of those who stood by, when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. The spectators didn't understand his words. That's the problem. Here's the problem. People don't understand the word of God. And the reality is that the word of God is not hard to understand. Most people don't understand it because they won't open it up and read it. And they won't come in humility to ask God to reveal himself to them because God is not hiding. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Amen? And people say, well, I would believe, but he's just, I can't find God. Well, he, he didn't move. You did. Amen? He's, he's available. His word is true. He's written it down. He's given us the Holy Spirit that we might have understanding. Verse 36, 
And then some ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to come and take him down. See, they're looking for Elijah because they esteem Elijah because they know that God used Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel. And he cried out to Almighty God and God brought judgment on the prophets of Baal and he brought fire down from the sky. But what they don't understand that Elijah is nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need Elijah. Elijah needs Jesus. Amen? And Jesus doesn't need us. We need him. He's not blessed that we're on his side. We're blessed that we're on his side. Amen? We shouldn't be praying, Lord, you need to get in line with me. No, Lord, we need to get in line with you. Let's follow him. Let's seek him. Verse 37, and he cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. We know from, the, from John and Matthew, he cried out, it is finished, to Talistai, which is paid in full. See, he didn't die. He yielded up his spirit. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it away. At last, the price had been paid. By the way, when everybody else was put on the cross, I guarantee you they fought when they were about to nail their hands and feet. If someone's going to drive a, a railroad stake through your hand, you're probably going to go down swinging. Jesus didn't do that. He freely laid down his hands. He freely laid down his feet. He freely laid down his life because he, was, he came to earth with an appointment with the cross of Calvary. And again, I truly believe that he thought about every single one of us while he hung on the cross. Then it says in verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn into from the top to the bottom. In Leviticus, this is point number four here, he tore the veil of separation between sinful man and holy God. In Leviticus 17, God declared that there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And the nation of Israel could experience the forgiveness of sin only on this single day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. If you remember, the first time you see the shedding of blood in the Bible is after Adam and Eve sinned. And if you remember, they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then what did the Lord do? He slayed an animal and he covered them with animal skins. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no covering for sin. Amen? So all the way back in the garden, we saw that it would require a sacrifice to cover the sinful, the sin of man. And here Jesus has paid that price. Again, the veil was massive, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 10 inches thick, took 300 priests to put it up. And when Jesus said it was finished, the veil was torn to top from top to bottom. And I love that. It just means God reached down from heaven and ripped it open. It took 300 people to put it up and one God to just tear it like that. Amen? That's our God. He, he opened the door that we can enter into his presence. The Holy of Holies became open for anyone to come into anywhere and anytime. And we only have one mediator. And again, I don't know what your background is, but you don't need to confess your sins to a priest and you don't need to pray with vain repetition and you don't need to go to any man so that he can intercede with God for you. Jesus died on the cross and he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you right now. So we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit, and he hears our prayers, amen? amen. And we don't need to go to any other man. We don't need to seek answers from anybody else. We come to the Lord, come to the Father, in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in Matthew, it says when he died that the whole earth shook. And it shook to the point where dead people got up out of the ground. Doesn't tell us how many, but enough. Amen? And they went into Jerusalem and testified that Jesus is God. How does everyone not get saved? Can you imagine if we drove by the, one of the local cemeteries and all there were holes in the ground and all the people got up and they're walking around telling you that Jesus is the Lord? How does everyone not get saved? It just goes to show you the pride of men, amen? But what's interesting is when the law was given, the earth shook. Remember Mount Sinai? When the law was given, the earth shook. And when the law was triumphed over by the grace of God. When the law was fulfilled in Christ, the earth shook again. It's not by chance. Amen? Just like 3,000 people died, right, early on when they would not, you know, repent, and then 3,000 souls were saved in a single day. See, the hand of God is at work, and we trust in the sovereignty of God. 
the torn veil, triumph over sin, resurrected saints, triumph over, the, over death. What a trip to see people who've been dead, who knows, 10, 50, 500, 1,000 years cruising around Jerusalem. Hey, Pharisees, you wanted a miracle? How about this? How about all these dead people walking around? How about your great-great-grandfather? He's right over there. Go talk to him. Guys, they're seeking after a sign. They still don't repent. Hey, it's all about a relationship. It's not about religion. It says there in verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was what? Now centurion is a man who commanded a hundred men. They were tough guys, fighters, warriors, chosen for bravery. But he saw a blackened sky, felt the earthquake, heard Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, heard it is finished, and he recognized, here this man is, the farthest thing from religious on the planet, and he recognizes Jesus for who he is. And the religious, self-righteous, wear the black robes, keep all the rules, miss the Messiah, and here this pagan man who worshiped false gods had his eyes open to the truth and he recognized Jesus for who he is. I truly believe that someone who has no relationship at all with the Lord is often more closer to getting saved than someone who's religious and think they've got it all figured out and they're self-righteous. They're, they're further away from salvation than someone who's the chief of sinners. Amen? And he recognized Jesus for who he was. There was only one conclusion. This is him. He's the son of God. Jesus' words fulfilled prophecy. His beatings, his scourging, his plucking of his beard, the silence before his accusers, the, star, the sky being darkened, the earthquake, the veil torn from top to bottom, graves being opened. And yet they still did not believe. Let's finish up. Look at verse 40. It says, there were also among them looking from afar. There were also women looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less and and, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up to him, came with him to Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that the women always hang out when the guys run? Just saying. Just saying. All the guys ran, they're all hiding, and the women stayed, and God bless them. Amen? Praise the Lord for godly women. Mary Magdalene was a woman who'd been delivered from seven demons. Um, Mary uh, was the mother of James and John, and a uh, mother of uh, James and John, and again, the sons of thunder. Remember, she had asked Jesus, said, when you come into your kingdom, can they sit at your right and your left hand? I think when she was at the cross, she might have figured out that would have been a bad thing because he was going into his kingdom and there were two guys on crosses right next to him. And she didn't realize what she was asking. Now let's watch this. This is finally, Jesus is buried here. Now when the evening had come, because of the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, we better hurry up and get him in the ground. Sabbath's coming. We got to worry about the Sabbath, not about the savior of the world. It's a problem when you're so caught up in religion, you miss out on the Messiah. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. We had two men that were kind of undercover followers of Christ. The other one was in John chapter three. He's mentioned in the other gospels is coming and helping with the body. What's his name? Nicodemus, right? He came by night because he didn't want to be seen. He was a super religious man, but he recognized something was missing. And so here you have Joseph and Nicodemus, who by touching a dead body would defile themselves for the Sabbath. But these are two guys that are super religious that recognize that it's not about religion, that Jesus is the answer. And they're not worried about being defiled by religion. They want to be faithful to the Lord. We need to be the same. By the way, let me just say this. I've grown to hate the word religion. I'm going to hate it. Now, I love what it means. Religion, it's relingara. It's relinking. It means to relink sinful man back to holy God. I love what it means. I hate what it's come to me. What it's come to me is some, you know, efforts by man to somehow be good enough to attain, you know, what's necessary to go to heaven. It's nauseating. And people that are religious, they, hang, they hold on to tradition instead of hanging on to the Savior with both hands. 
And they judge people based on their outward appearance. Where God says we, we look upon the heart. The thing I hate about religion is it, it, is it doesn't want people to come. It tells people they're not welcome. I want to tell you right now, anybody, and I don't care what you've been through, where you come from, what you've done, and what you continue to struggle with, we want you here. The Lord loves you and so do we. Amen? And that's the way the body of Christ should be. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. So it says they take his body. He went to Pilate and asked for his body. And Pilate marveled he was already dead and summoned a centurion. And he asked him if he had been dead. He said he had been dead for some time. Now, in the other gospels, they're going to go to break Jesus' legs to make sure that he has died. And when they go, he's already dead. They put a spear in his side, water poured out. But we know in the word that while his, his body is broken, his skin and everything else, he did not have any broken bones. That too fulfilled uh, Old Testament prophecy. It says in Isaiah 53, 9, and they made a grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. This speaks about where he would die and how he would be buried. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. And notice how it says, it says, now Pilate marveled, verse 45, so when they found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And when he brought fine linen, he took him down, he wrapped him in linen, he laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he laid. Again, the women are still there. Guys are in hiding, afraid of the, of the world and, the, and of, of the Romans and the religious leaders of the day. Now, if you're reading most people's biography, that's where it ends. And then he died and he was buried, had a funeral and game over. But guess what? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? And we're going to see that they're going to Put guards. Have you ever been to a mortuary and they got people guarding a tomb to make sure the person doesn't get up? But they're going to put people at the tomb because they're going to say, well, then maybe someone will come and steal his body. And then they'll say that he rose from the dead. See, the sad part is that religious leaders listened enough because Jesus said he would be raised from the dead in the third day. But what's amazing about this is, praise God, they sent soldiers there because then they had a bunch of witnesses that saw him raised from the dead. Amen? An angel showed up, put these guys on the ground, and Jesus walked out. Guys, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We don't serve a dead God. We're not a bunch of religious people. We're people that have a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He has triumphed over sin and death and never lose sight that he endured all of this because he loves each and every one of you that much. Don't ever lose sight of that, amen? So just how much does Jesus love you? He endured the pain and mocking from wicked men that you might be saved. Even in his time of great physical weakness and suffering, he pressed on out of love for you. He suffered as if he lived your life so you could be rewarded as if you lived his. He felt the pain of sin and separation so that we might know the joy of intimacy and eternal fellowship. He tore down the veil of separation so you and I can have fellowship with him here and now. And he triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. See, he experienced death so that you and I might have life. See, because Almighty God sent his son to die, I know that I'm gonna see my son again. And I know I'm gonna see all those who've gone before us. And I want to say this. Let me close with this. I went to a funeral recently, and it was for one of my assistant pastors in Santa Cruz. It was about nine months ago. And I had not been the pastor of that church for, since we came. By the way, this church is nine years old today. It was nine years ago today that we had our first service. But what's amazing is we went to this funeral, and people had come from far and wide that all went to that church back in the early 2000s. And what was amazing is the funeral was supposed to start but when we were standing there, you kept turning around and seeing people that you loved and had fellowship with in the past, but hadn't seen in a long time. So everybody's running and just hugging each other and people are shedding tears and hugging. And I turn around, there's more people and I'm hugging more people. And we just kept hugging each other for almost an hour. People are just hugging each other and, and rejoicing and excited to see each other. And you know what I thought? This is what heaven's going to be like when we get there. We're going to, first, we're going to hug Jesus and get in, you know, I don't want to be, you know, but get it behind me on that line. But the point is, we're going to hug the Lord, 
But then, I, can you imagine every, you're going to turn around, there's your great-grandmother, and there's your, your, your neighbor that got saved, and there's that person that led you to the Lord, and there's somebody that you were able, God, God's grace leads to the Lord. And can you imagine what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, and we embrace our Savior, and then we see all those who've gone before us. I can't wait to see Mrs. Green. She led me to the Lord in 1968 at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington in the kindergarten class, and tell her about all that the Lord did, because she was faithful to teach a five-year-old about Jesus. Amen? Guys, I can't wait for heaven. Heaven is better. And you know what? He desires that none should perish, no, not one. But salvation is offered universally, must be accepted individually. See, you, God will not force you into heaven. He wants, you all, wants us all to go. He wants to pay for the sin of all mankind. And he offers redemption to you. But you must be the one that says, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm ready to surrender my life to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. And we thank you for the cross of Calvary, the greatest act of love in all of human history. We thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you know us best and you love us most. You know every wicked, vile thing that we've ever done and you love us anyway. You are such a gracious God, such a merciful God, such a loving God. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. I'm not asking you to join a church or anything else, but just if, you've, if this has really ministered to you, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you, you know what, I've never fully surrendered my life to the Lord. You know, I've gone to church, but I've never said, Lord, take control of my life. I've never truly repented, which means to turn my life around, turn away from me being on the throne and surrendering my life to the Lord. If you're here tonight, if you confess him before men, the Bible says that he'll confess you before his father in heaven. You can be forgiven. You can leave here with the promise of eternal life. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord and that's your desire right now, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are and I want to pray with you. Anybody at all, don't leave here without the Lord. He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You and you alone are the reason for the season. It's not about 